So we have a surprise topic this morning, inquiry. <laughs> I think I, I can't resist. I have, you know, I carry my little clown nose in my pocket, right? You know, and, and it's the, kind of the little trickster energy comes out from time to time. For those of you who don't know, I had, I had some years, well, not that years, but I had, I had some period of, of training to be a clown. And the energy bubbles up sometimes. And is this inquiry number two? This is, this is the third, yeah, the third um, talk on inquiry. We've explored it uh, the last two weeks. And there was a lot of energy last time for continuing to work with it. And this may be the last time. That's my guess, but we'll have to see. And inquiry and investigation are these really important qualities of our practice that can lead us to really uh, a sense of the aliveness and the freshness and the energy of learning, learning in a spiritual context. It's a quality that I have loved for and I've gravitated sometimes to teachers who've been teachers of inquiry. And not everyone is. Uh, so inquiry is um, has a number of wonderful qualities. I would say one of them is, is that it helps our practice to be fresh. It helps us to really look carefully and see in a new way, see, uh, see as it were, with new eyes, our experience. To look, uh, related to that, there's a quality of interest that we are actually interested. And, there, you know, meditation, like anything else, can get rote. It can get habitual. It can be all just sit. And again, I, I know I do this sometimes, and I'm imagining that many of, many of uh, us do as well, that there's some, a way in which I just sort of say, well, let me just get into this nice, relaxed state. Right? Does anyone do that? <laughs> some slowly moving hands <laughs> coming, coming up. Um, and it's natural because... It's natural to want a quality of peace and relaxation in relation to our experience, which is sometimes stressful and conflictual and so forth. And yet, we have to be a little careful of that impulse towards that peace because it sometimes can also get us in a bit in a rut. And the quality of inquiry brings that freshness. It brings interest. It's, it's this sense of really wanting to uh, look more carefully, really being interested. Oh, let me see that. Let me see that as if for the first time. And a beautiful aspect of inquiry is that it does really let us look. I can look, oh, I've never really looked at in quite such a direct way as to how I respond to suffering, my own suffering. I've never looked with as quite as fresh eyes at um, my own anger or my own joy. And so there's this quality which brings aliveness and freshness and um, a lot of energy that inquiry can really... um, because it almost opens up some doorways, it opens up some new ways of seeing, it can give a lot of energy to our practice. And so, as I've mentioned the last two times, uh, it's one of the factors of awakening, one of the factors that both helps us awakening, and that is the uh, nature of an awakened being, or a fairly awakened being, (laughs) is this aspect of um, inquiry, uh, the freshness, even the kind of curiosity and yet it's, um, it's something which has, we might say, some preconditions. That inquiry works best 
when we are um, not overly restless or excited. Because inquiry often works with language, if we're totally caught up in being really wordy and what we might call heady and so forth, caught up in repetitive thinking, it's not so skillful to work with inquiry. So there are some kinds of inquiry which uh, we can work with a little bit more if we're really restless or heady, and some of the others, and I'll try to mention them as we go through them, that actually require a certain degree of silence of mind to do well. And that, as as we would say medically, are contraindicated (laughs) in certain (laughs) circumstances. So we want to be a little careful. I'm going to go through particularly some of the methods of inquiry, which I didn't talk about so much last time, and to know that they all have their, their preconditions. Inquiry has a lot of power also. It helps us really to cut through our fixations, our fixated thinking, our repetitive thoughts, our, our habits. It has the uh, power to penetrate quite deeply. And interestingly, if you read the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, you will find we could say that more people reach deep awakening in the context of inquiry, in a sense. In the context, uh, well, let me, let me back up, that more people, in the, there are more stories in the text of people having awakening while listening to talks, particularly those of the Buddha, who we, we understand was a pretty good speaker. <laughs> and, but people awakened hearing that. And in other Buddhist traditions and Zen traditions, people awaken with the sharpness of a point. You know, really something being said in a certain way just explodes something. More people awaken with hearing talks and hearing sort of um, penetrating discourses than in deep meditation. It's interesting. I don't know if whether that's uh, actually accurate to the experience, but it's accurate to the text. That's what you, if you actually look at the text, you find more stories like that. And again, you can see that in, in, in Zen tradition, that's also emphasized a lot. People actually awakening, hearing some, some word is said by a Zen teacher, and people, something gets realigned. And we can get a sense of that as we do this kind of inquiry, that certain ways of um, even using language can cut through fixations of language. And so there's sometimes a paradoxical aspect of inquiry, that we use language to cut through language. We use concepts to cut through concepts. It's interesting. We, uh, uh, we use knowing to cut through ignorance. We use unknowing to cut through ignorant knowing. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so it gets, there's a, and so the, the paradox can bring a certain playful quality even to inquiry. It's, it, it can be fun. Mm. On the handout, and last time I talked about five kinds of inquiry, and I want to mention really the first three, and then spend more time with the fourth and fifth, and give a lot of time for us to uh, compare notes, because people, how many people have been working with inquiry in the last week? And so it would be great to hear some of the experiences, explorations, and questions. The first kind of inquiry I've talked about as inquiry that's rooted in mindfulness. And I should say that probably each of us may gravitate to one of these forms of inquiry and maybe not to others. And some of them are more applicable in daily life and some of them take pretty 
specific, special kinds of context. This first kind of approach with mindfulness is really completely applicable in daily life. And this is the practice that we did at the beginning of the sitting for those of us who, who were present then. And that we did, I think, two, two classes uh, ago at the beginning of the sitting also. Very, very basic practice where we, use, where, where we develop um, inquiry through mindfulness. And it's a kind, it, but it has a, it's mindfulness with a certain edge, we might say. <laughs> it's mindfulness that actively may use uh, some active inquiry. Um, that, so we might say, we might, con- one way, I gave three techniques at the beginning. One was simply to keep asking the question, what's happening right now? What's happening in the present moment? And it's inviting us to really notice that and even to, to clearly say, maybe to ourselves, this is happening. It's a tremendous technique for daily life because, again, the, um, the main problem of our meditation practice is not that mindfulness is hard, but that we forget to be mindful in daily life. And so a practice where we continually ask the question is essentially reminding us to be mindful. So if you just... Uh, kept on saying during the day, you know, be careful who, if it, you know, about saying it to others, you know, you know, what's happening in the present moment? If we, you know, go around saying to everyone else, what's happening in the present moment? What's happening? You know, and say it every, but it, seriously, if we, and you might try this as a practice for like an hour or two hour period, just ask, keep on asking that or ask it uh, periodically. You know, I've talked about how I Sometimes at meetings, I keep asking, you know, I, take a, I have a running mindfulness log on a piece of paper. And I just say, this is happening. You know, okay. Listening. Reflecting. You know, developing sarcastic thoughts about the meeting. <laughs> but it's just, it's just that mindfulness, right? It's just that, um, that's mindfulness. It's like, what's happening? And just to ask that question can be powerful. And especially, it's a powerful question to ask when we're, confused, or when we're troubled, or we have some inner conflict. We've just had a difficult emotional interaction with someone. And just to ask that question, what's happening? What's really happening? It kind of, sometimes it can take us more to presence and away from the spinning thoughts. So it's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And a second technique is, is related to that. It's simply the, the technique of noting, of labeling. Uh, it, and it, again, it's to bring us back to the present to let us know what's happening. It could be the, in, in the formal meditation, it could be simply to say, okay, there's a um, strong sensation there in my knee, or there's, there's uh, happiness. Okay, just to notice, you, there's planning occurring. Just to use that label is a way that can help with inquiry. And then the third technique I mentioned was, as we, especially when we have some degree of settled mind, of letting ourselves immerse more in the experience and studying it. It's like, okay, there's a sensation there. I'm noticing myself being a little reactive towards the sensation in my body. Let me just stay there and notice what happens. Let me notice what occurs. Let me really study how I relate to some medium-level unpleasant sensations. Let me study it. Let me see what comes up. Let me notice what happens. Let me study my anger. Let me just hang out with my anger and study it. Not just noticing its qualities, but also noting how it ebbs and flows. What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the mind? So there, that's, you can get the sense of this real interest. Instead of 
uh, a given experience being a, as it were, a curse or a blessing. Oh, oh there's anger here. Bad. Get it. Get out of here. You know, some of you may have the opposite <laughs> relation to anger. Oh, anger. Oh, yeah. I, I like anger. Whatever. But instead of uh, kind of categorizing things, everything is either good or bad, and we kind of go it. But let me actually inquire. Let me look. Let me study. And so it becomes this really um, wonderful invitation to uh, look more deeply. And so, and that, so that's, that's a quality of inquiry which I think is pretty accessible, even if we don't have a lot of concentration. We can always ask what's happening. And we don't have to be deep in meditative equipoise to really ask that question and have it be helpful. You know, even in the midst of a, a conversation, what's happening right now? We just take a little bit of a break, go inward, and say, oh, I'm feeling feeling a little discombobulated. And that's helpful to notice that. And because it's the whole idea is that when there's more mindfulness, there's more of a likelihood that we'll act wisely and compassionately. The second um, method that I gave uh, last time, and again, this is all on the handout, is the method of what I call deep listening. And, that, and that a lot of different techniques could fall under that quality of deep listening. In a way, it's a, a listening beneath the surface. And the, one of the techniques which I gave, and I think two classes ago I gave a guided meditation on this, is the a technique that I like to call the dropping down practice. The practice of when there's repetitive thoughts, when there are repetitive thoughts that might have been just keep coming. You know, some sittings, something happened in our lives and we're just going to the same place over and over again. And... Sometimes the thoughts function as it were almost to, almost to distract us or it's like they're preoccupied. And it's a very helpful technique sometimes to work with those repetitive thoughts and then shift the attention to the body. Sometimes we can shift it to the area around the heart and just, feel, and, and just in a way listen. Sometimes we can shift it to another part of our body or to our belly or our whole body and we can just listen not with the idea of figuring out. We have, this is where we need some distinctions. We have to distinguish between listening and thinking we're listening, but really trying to figure it out. And that's an important distinction. Listening has a certain degree of silence. It doesn't need an answer in a way. It's really listening for the truth rather than what we think is the truth. So that's a big distinction. And so we can do that, and sometimes we don't get anything. We don't have to have anything, but sometimes, you know, and again, works really powerfully with repetitive thoughts. It's a, it's a core technique for working with repetitive thoughts. We can shift, and it needs a certain degree of silence. So if you're working with this, and the mind is just going all over the place, we, we may need some more silence to use that technique. If the mind is really, really active, it's not going to work that well. And you may not even want to try it. You may want to use one of the other techniques. Or just settle the mind. But sometimes when there's some degree of subtleness, we can come and we can actually listen and say, oh, let me listen. I've been thinking all about that email that X sent to me. What's the, you know, and, and then my mind's going off and on. Well, here's what I'm going to say. I'll, okay. I have three main points I'm going to say. Yeah, one, let me... Let me work it up. I mean, I just go over them over and over again. And then I say, okay, time for the drop-down practice. <laughs> Let me drop down. 
nothing right now, not noticing anything. Oh, I can feel kind of, and this may take minutes or it may, may take a number of sittings. Oh, I feel almost like a vague sense of sadness, kind of like the mists of sadness. I can feel that. I feel it more in my body. And then I just stay with that. Oh, yeah, I'm really, you know, even though I'm trying to really develop this three-pronged response, I'm actually really sad about what happened. And I hang out with that. And I stay there. And sometimes we do that. And it shifts the energy. It lets me know more, more deeply what's happening. And as we get more proficient at that, we can have that quality of deep listening and interactions with others. And there again, there are a lot of techniques that we could mention. And we've, I think we've had sessions here uh, just on the, fo- on, on the theme of listening. But it's a powerful, it's a powerful, it's a beautiful way to be in the world to really be listening and to listen more deeply. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about deep listening extensively and asks us to have our meditation be a kind of deep listening. And there are, there are other techniques, such as just asking, in a sense, sometimes a technique that I use sometimes when I'm just really confused is I just ask the question, what's happening? And I try to listen. And that's also a kind of deep listening technique. The third method was the subject of the guided meditation. That is, working with a particular teaching as, a, as it were, a kind of a lens for um, looking at experience. And it's an old, very old tradition. It's used in other traditions. People will, in fact, the original Western word, meditation, came out of that, this kind of practice. Some of you may know that in the, in the Middle Ages, there were three main forms, you know, in, in Christian contemplative tradition, there were three main practices. One was called lexio, which was the reading of sacred texts. Another was called contemplatio, which is actually more like what we call meditation, which was the, you know, the, the working with the deeper listening the, and going into silence. And then there was meditatio, which was actually meditating on teachings. Actually, uh, you know, like we use that sometimes in English. People say, well, I'll meditate on that meaning I'll reflect on it. And that's actually the original meaning. It's interesting that we've taken that word to mean more the silent kind of practice. But it's that, so it's in other traditions. It's a technique that probably many of you have done in maybe in working in other traditions in your youth or, or other times. It's really to use a teaching as a lens. And we've done, we did that this morning with the Four Noble Truths, really asking how can I... Um, work with that as a practice. Again, a practice for formal meditation, a practice for daily life, just to really say, let me uh, use the Four Noble Truths and look more deeply. Let me use that in my meditation, be on the lookout for suffering. And then when it comes, I can really investigate it rather than it sometimes suffer, suffering announces itself, oh, crisis, get rid of the suffering. <laughs> you know, Let me do this or that. But it rather something like that uh, comes up and it becomes a starting point for inquiry, for deeper looking, for actually for having insight. This morning we, were, we had a, a session on the precepts. We had precepts renewal this morning. I'm sorry I forgot to announce it last time. So we, we didn't have as many people as we usually do, but it'll be again in three weeks, I think on July 11th, actually. I'll try to remember on July 4th among <laughs> all that's happening. <laughs> uh, 
But we, were, we can work with the ethical precepts as a very powerful form of inquiry, and I'm sure many of you have done that. We've done that sometimes in the class. So, for example, I could take, um, as we did this morning, I could really say, for this week I want to give attention to my ethics, to my work with the ethical guidelines of not harming, of not taking that which is not given, of care with uh, sexual energy or, the, or intoxicants or my speech. And I might, let's say that I took as an ethical precept, I want to really be careful with my speech this week. And I could work with that in my meditations. I could set an intention to really work with speech. I could study it more. I could be aware that the speech has to do with, in the traditional teaching, with being really having a kind of guideline to be truthful, to be helpful and constructive in one's speech, to have a kind of quality of kindness or warmth in one's speech, and to um, um, work with good timing and, you know, is this a good time to talk about this is, and, and to have some skillfulness. And I could take that and say, I'm going to work with this for the next week and, and study it. And it could be a powerful form of inquiry as, as it has been. You know, I've and, and I have some small groups that I've worked with out of my home, and we've sometimes taken wise speech as a source of inquiry for, uh, one time we did it for about three months, you know, really working with that and really noticing it, and it becomes a powerful kind of force for inquiry. You know, uh, I would sometimes go to meetings when I was doing that work more in a focused way and have the, these guidelines for wise speech and put them on the sheet of paper in front of me at the meeting, Right? And also I do the same thing. I've done the same thing. Um, I have them in front of my, uh, near my telephone. You know, so I would, a telephone rings. Ding. Truthfulness. Helpfulness. Warmth. Good timing. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And and it, it, it strengthens the inquiry, but then it especially manifests when we're just speaking, maybe if we, if we do that enough, and we're just in the middle of speech, and we might, and we might say something, we say, is that kind? That's, and, and so the precepts can function as this powerful support for inquiry. And basically what they do is when we get in kind of a, what we might call a gray area or an ambiguous area, the teaching gives, basically has the energy to say, you know, have a little... Beep, come on, beep, 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 beep. You are now in the territory where you may be acting problematically in relation to the precept. Pay attention, Donald. And that's inquiry. And, and it can really, do you get a sense of how we can work with this? And it can really illuminate. It can really say, be mindful here. Bring, you know, try to be present. Try to see more clearly. And so um, some of you may be drawn by this, and you can really work with any teaching. The key, as we were talking about before the talk with Marty, was that to, we, we need some intention, and for something like the Four Truths, it's helpful to practice it in our formal practice before bringing it out into our daily lives. And it also is a practice, so it takes some continuity. You can't just do it once and expect to have results. You really need to keep on repeating. And so this is another... Uh, example of inquiry, and it may be that you hear, you'll hear a lot of methods, and I think what I would most want would be that maybe one of them appeals to you for right now. And you say, well, let me work with this for the next week or two weeks. 
And because there's a lot, of the, there are a lot of techniques, and my intention is not to sort of give you, oh my God, there are 13 techniques of inquiry, and how am I going to do them all at once? It's really more to, to see where you're drawn. This fourth kind of inquiry, is, I'm, now I'll get to the two that I haven't talked about so much, <laughs> uh, and that are actually, uh, actually have the potential to, to even go more deeply, and some of them are, are less applicable, less easy to apply in daily life. I think the first three that we've mentioned, we can really work with them in daily life pretty well. The fourth I, I call radical questioning. And again, it's a, it's a technique that is uh, really found in Western and Eastern traditions. Socrates, 2,500 years ago, said the unexamined life is not worth living. Really this invitation to a kind of deep questioning. And it's, I gave the story last time of how I worked with the, the uh, question in a retreat, how am I not free? And probably many of you were here. It was this very powerful use of inquiry, which I've loved using in retreats, using like a single question, which I keep repeating over and over again. How am I not free? And in that, I won't repeat the story, but just to say that asking that question in a sustained way over 10 days, in, a, in the context of kind of intuitive, silent inquiry, um, went deeply in unexpected ways. And I, I mentioned how I asked that question and came up over time in a more an intuitive way with a list of all the ways that I was not free. I had my list of 15 ways, I think. You know, I am not free when I'm afraid of death. I am not free when um, I'm afraid of pain, were some of, the, some of them I came up with. And then at a certain point I saw that in my list of 15, I didn't believe in any of them. Even though when, I, when they were powerful, I was dominated by them and I was not free. But I saw, oh, I, I've had experiences where I don't believe in any of them. And at that moment, like there was this explosion in my consciousness. And I thought, wait a second, I don't believe in any of them. And if I can actually touch that right at this moment, I'm free. Because I don't really believe in any of them. And there was something, I just, I told you how I went out into the woods and started screaming, I'm free, I'm free. I, I didn't do it in the hall, <laughs> out of deference to. But it was, it was a very uh, intense experience. And just, I, did, I just walked around in the woods. You know, you can get the sense how it shifted consciousness, this asking of the question and touching something. And that, that's a tool that's, that's used in other traditions. I wanted to read you something from... Stephen Batchelor's wonderful book, The Faith to Doubt, which some of, how many people know this book? It's a beautiful, powerful book, a lot about inquiry. He has all this wonderful material in inquiry. And I wanted to read you a little bit about the use of inquiry in a very similar way in Zen tradition. So Stephen Batchelor talks about his account. Um, the retreat begins. This is a Zen. This is a three-month Zen retreat. Uh, he says a confusing succession of bells rang out, summoning the forty or so monks who had assembled at Songwasa that season to the lecture hall for the formal opening of the retreat. The teacher Kusan Sunim pounded his heavy wooden staff on the platform and asked, 
Is your original face brilliantly clear to you? <laughs> so you, you have some, under, some appreciation of the gentle methods we use at Spirit Rock. So, so is your original face brilliantly clear to you? No one said a word. He insisted, if you have the Dharma eye, say something. Again, there was silence. He gave a loud shout, Huck! And then said, when the eye on the boulder opens, then you will understand. He read a verse he had composed. In the beginning, awakening shines perfectly. Now the circle of illumination is scattered with broken tiles, which people claim are precious gems. Flowers bob softly on the river as they float beneath the bridge. He turned to his audience with an impish smile and casually asked what kind of teaching these swallows could be given. After another perplexed silence, he replied for us, those are the swallows. There then followed a more intelligible account of Zen practice. And he goes on to say that. The retreat began in earnest the following morning at 2 o'clock in the morning. And this routine, 13 hours of meditation ending at night, was to continue for 89 more days. 50 minutes sitting on a cushion, followed by 10 minutes walking briskly around the hall, each session measured by the tedious ticking of an ancient clock and the shocking cracks of a wooden clapper. Such were the new parameters of my temporal world, interrupted only for food and insufficient sleep. And then he goes on to say, Apart from the uh, brief daily cleaning, this is all that happens in the meditation hall. The rest of the time, I expect to, I'm expected to ask with all my strength, what is it? For perhaps, what is this? For simply, what? For perhaps, why is it? For why is this? I am told that it is the questioning that matters, not the words. And so this is a, another tool of practice, again, I think similar to what I was describing in my own experience, of really to take one beneath the surface. Ramana Maharshi in the Hindu tradition works continually with the question, who am I, as a way to sort of go more deeply. So there are these different ways to inquire. And I would encourage us, if we feel called to that kind of practice, to do that at some point with a teacher who works with those kind of techniques. Because they can be very powerful. They, as in Zen practice, the, the idea is that it takes one beneath the surface. Something else comes up you know, when you just stay with that. As with the use of koans or a kind of inquiry. Some of you know what is the what, sound of one hand clapping. You know, and you stay with that. Again, not what we do here at Spirit Rock. And, but it has some similarities to the kind of questioning we can continue with. The last kind of method... Uh, Maybe a little more accessible than I don't know if that how accessible that felt, or you'd have to kind of sign up for a retreat to use that technique. The last kind I want to mention I, I talk about is the deconstruction of core beliefs. Again, it's a very powerful method. It's in a way can has the power to penetrate very deeply. And I want to give some pretty practical examples of that. Um, but but First to say that this connects with the really core teaching of the Buddha, which is to look out for how our views get fixed. 
and repetitive and habitual, how we get caught in fixed views. And so this is a very fundamental teaching of the Buddha to see basically where we grasp onto views. And it's a pretty elaborate teaching, and maybe we can have more depth on that another time. But he says that it's actually quite um, prolific, even in spiritual settings. Of course, people get attached to views um, you know, politically. We can see that very obvious. People get attached to views in family arguments and so forth, in at work and so forth, but we can do, we can do that also in spiritual settings. Um, this is from one of the Buddha's texts, um, one of the suttas, where the Buddha is reporting on what he finds in certain spiritual settings. Quote, only here is there purity. That's what some say. No other doctrines are pure. So this was going on in India. People were saying, we're pure, they're bad. Insisting that they, what they depend on is good, they are deeply entrenched in their views. Seeking controversy, they plunge into assembly, regarding one another as fools, relying on others' authority. They speak in, and debate. Desiring praise, they claim to be skillful. Engaged in disputes, anxious, desiring praise, the one defeated is chagrined. Shaken with criticism, he seeks for an opening. So you get the sense of this contention with views, which... Again, maybe in the extreme form described here, but it's, that's familiar, isn't it? That we can look and see how we get attached to views, and we, again, we can take that as a starting point for inquiry. There also are a lot of habitual views that we can just get caught in. Uh, Mark Coleman, who also teaches here, tells a really interesting story of how um, someone he knows who's a father, every year... At the time, I think, of the daughter's birthday, the father and the daughter sit next to each other and they look at each other and the father says, I am not your father. And the daughter says, I am not your daughter. And they do that for a while. And you get their intention. It's like, how much do we get caught in these concepts? Not that they're false in some way, but how much do we get caught in them and stuck? And they use that technique as a way to, to in a way, deconstruct the fixity of the, of the beliefs. Interesting, isn't it? Can, do, can be creative in that in certain ways. Another example that I was thinking of comes from uh, an experience I had about uh, almost 20 years ago. I was in a I, I was in a, a group that was called uh, Revisioning Philosophy. I was a young philosophy teacher at that point. And I was invited to be part of this national group, which included people like Houston Smith and some very wonderful people. It, was, it met at Esalen, which was pretty cool. That was my first invitation to Esalen. <laughs> you know, it was the hot baths and all that. It was, it was, and, but interestingly, what we found, there were all these you know, spiritually minded and new kinds of people who were philosophers. And what we found is that when we actually met together, sure enough, there was some, we could get the sense of some tension around views. Interesting, isn't it? And even with these, you know, highly developed people, you know, someone says something and someone feels, oh my God, that's, and, and, you know, it could feel almost like a kind of war developing between some people at times. And at that point, one, one person, uh, Robert McDermott, I remember, who later became the president of CIIS in uh, San Francisco, 
he made the suggestion, which has really stayed with me. He said, let's take our, let's take the noticing of tension around views be the starting point for inquiry rather than the starting point for war. And it's a really interesting practice. It was so, what it became is when I, and you can try this with people at work or in your family, when someone would say something, and I would notice myself saying, and it might happen if you listen to the, national, the evening news and hear you know, certain politicians speak you know, on, on either side. You might just say, um, my mother actually says, she's not here this morning, says, I don't listen to certain people speak. But, but we might feel that kind of inner tension, right? And here the invitation would be, see what that's about. You know, what's there in oneself? It doesn't mean one gives up one's views, but it's like seeing where is their attachment to the views. And I've, I've used this in when I've taught sometimes with groups, saying let's use this as a practice. When someone else says something, you feel something inside just go, uh, start inquiring. Use it as a starting point for inquiry. See what there is inside. What is there? There. Sometimes it can go quite deeply. You, know, you can really say, oh, that reminds me of something actually in my childhood. Where so, and it can actually be connected with very deep experiences. You know, where it might be, we can ask the question, when we notice that tension with someone, is there something I can learn here? Is there something I can learn from this person? Is there a way this person has part of the truth? And we can use that kind of inquiry in a very practical way when we find that kind of tension. It's an interesting practice. I've really learned tremendously doing that practice. That's a kind of uh, asking about where am I fixed in my beliefs. Another form, I'll give maybe one more example, uh, has come up in, in working with judgments and that some of the work that we've done. Judgments, in a sense, and by judgments I'm meaning these typically harsh, fixed beliefs about this person or that person or myself. What we can do also as a kind of inquiry is to use the arrival of those judgments and if we notice them enough, we can use them as a starting point for inquiry. And what I have found with working with people is that if we do that, we, and we work with them and notice them, we can sometimes take this inquiry very, very deeply. We can notice, here's my judgment. We can actually follow the judgment. Sometimes to you, we use sometimes that drop-down practice, and we can actually notice what's beneath the surface of the judgment. And what I have found typically is that there's unacknowledged pain beneath the judgment. And when we actually touch into that pain and actually sit with it, we can actually sometimes go quite deeply and really touch there and find that the fixed belief is connected with unprocessed pain, <coughs> usually from the past. And that when we actually attend to that, the fixity of the belief tends to dissolve in a certain way. Again, it doesn't mean that we uh, give up. There, and what we found usually is that the fixity of the belief usually has some intelligence. And I'm give, I realize I'm giving a lot right now. But that the, the, the fixity of the belief, you know, it might be, you know, I might, to give an example, I might say, I might see someone acting and I might say, that person's acting really rudely. You know, you can sense there's some reactivity in the way, in the tone of my voice. And if I stay with that, I might go deeply and I might actually touch some pain that maybe has to do with, I don't know, that the person's taking up a lot of airspace and 
You know, I might actually touch in, oh, I haven't felt like there's enough airspace for me in my life. And I might actually feel that. And actually, as we know, that can go really, really deeply. It can go way back, and it can actually be a doorway. And part of the reason that I'm noticing that person being reactive is because of my own unresolved pain. And as I work with that, over time, I can preserve the intelligence that notes the person's acting in a certain way. And if I work some further with my pain, I might be able actually to respond to that person uh, skillfully. So there's intelligence there. The person is acting in problematic ways. But the reactivity is something that is actually not going to be so helpful. Are you following me? Mm -hmm. And so there's this way that we can use uh, judgments uh, and following them. We can actually deconstruct the fixity of our judgments and actually see how they may be rooted in things beneath the surface that we can actually then work on and transform. And I think a lot of good psychotherapy works in some similar ways, that there can be a way of actually going into the source of core fixed beliefs, going into that territory and touching what's there, typically some kind of pain, and transforming it. And of course, that process can take a long time, you know, because some stuff is really deep and hard. You know, it can take a few years or, you know, it depends on where we are, uh, as it were, developmentally. But there's this beautiful practice of working in a variety of ways with fixed beliefs in a way that, that opens us up to more lightness with our views, more of an ability to respond skillfully, and I think ultimately more compassion. And so um, all of these methods, I think, take us in that direction. I hope that some of these have resonated with you and that we can work with them. And I would say keep it simple. <laughs> keep it simple. And the, the first methods, using mindfulness and maybe even some of that deeper listening and the working with teachings, I think are pretty accessible. Those don't take special situations. So um, in a way, uh, I thank you for listening to this uh, exploration, which is really fun for me because I love inquiry. And it's really taught me a lot. And I enjoy being able to uh, pass on and share some with you. And um, so thank you. Knowing that we practice both for ourselves and for others, we offer the fruits, the benefits, the insight from this morning, outward to all beings without exception, for their benefit, for their healing, for their freedom. Thank you. Thank you for your uh, wonderful attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.